You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Romans chapter 9 is where we are at today. We'll be starting in verse 14, picking up where we left off last week, and we will be moving through verse 29 today. Uh, We're going to stop just short of finishing the chapter because verse 30 on into chapter 10 just works better for, uh, for context and for study preparation, and I'm selfish, so that's what we're going to do. Anyways, um, but we will be studying today, and if you're taking notes, the title of today's message is God is Righteous. God is Righteous. You can, of course, find the study guide there on the church app if you have that downloaded on your phone, or for you who are watching online, we see you. We're glad you're with us. Uh, you can find it under Facebook. Uh, there's a video on Facebook or under the website uh, video there on the website. But you very well know that in chapter 9, this is the section known uh, as dealing with God's plan and really God's plan for Israel. And Romans, you very well know, and so you never forget it, I'm going to say it again, breaks up into four specific sections. We first saw the wrath of God in chapters 1 through 320 really dealing with the reality that we are all sinners needing a Savior. And the next section tells us about that Savior. In chapters 3, 21 through chapter 8, we see that Jesus loves us and so became our Savior as he demonstrated his great love for us, dying on the cross, making a way for us to have access to God by us putting our faith in that finished work. And chapters 321 through chapter 8 really lays all of that out, what it looks like to be justified, and then also start on this life of sanctification, looking more like the Lord. The current section, of course, is dealing with the plan of God, specifically for the nation of Israel. As Paul here is speaking about how God has a plan for the nation of Israel, he's not done with that nation, but is actively working and will work in that nation. And then after this, in chapter 12 through chapter 16, we're going to see the will of God. And that, again, is where Paul takes all of the doctrine that he's laying out for us. He lays it out and then says, all right, here it is. You know it. Now go and do so. Go and live this way. And we will get to that when we get there. But today, as we are in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, again, we started this chapter last week in this section, Paul addressing the nation of Israel. And in chapter 9, we are looking at Israel's past election as a nation. And what Paul is doing is he's answering really the questions that are having to deal with God's word specifically to the nation of Israel, who is God's chosen people. They are. He chose them out of the Ur of the Chaldeans there in Abram. He called him out from his homeland and said, I want you to set apart and be mine. And he set them apart, set the nation of Israel apart as his special people. And to them, he gave special promises and covenants and the word of God there to the nation so that they would live as his people. And now what has happened is, again, the context in which Paul is writing, we know that there in Jerusalem, the temple is still standing and there are There in the temple, there are sacrifices being offered. There are rituals being adhered to that are no longer needed because Jesus has already come. Jesus has come and has made himself the ultimate sacrifice there for the world. But what has happened is the Jewish nation as a whole rejected the Messiah there. Now, some, of course, Some, of course, because of the disciples who followed Jesus, came to know that Jesus is the Savior. And so they have given their life to Christ. But who else has been able to give their life to Christ is the Gentiles as well. We see the Gentiles, the Jews there see the Gentiles giving their life to Jesus. And so what's happening is there's this confusion. 
There's this questioning now from the Jewish, the Jewish nation as to, okay, what's going on here? Some that see their, their, uh, their friends getting saved, but yet are wondering like why, why others aren't getting saved. They're like, okay, well, what's God doing with them? What, did God mess up? They look at the Gentiles. They're like, why are these Gentiles who before now, I just thought fueled the fires of hell, why are they being saved? And they're wondering here, what's going on? Has God failed? Has God deviated? Has God changed his mind? They wanted answers. And so last week, we look at how Paul spoke out and said, indeed, no, God's word has not failed. God did not fail. And he answered that question and showed that certainly the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. He had chosen them, but yet they missed how they were to respond to that choosing. They thought it had to deal with bloodline. They thought it had to deal with merits. But yet Paul was saying, no, it's a spiritual way in which you are to respond to being chosen. It's a spiritual walk in the life that God has called you to. And Paul used two examples from the book of Genesis to show this. There in Isaac and Ishmael, showing how God passed over the work of the flesh and chose instead the work of the Spirit in Isaac. And then going from there, from Isaac's sons, how he chose Jacob, the younger over Esau, who was the older, saying that Jacob would be the one who would carry on and be the one from which the nation of Israel would come. And as you read about those boys, those four boys specifically, you see that the trajectory of their life and how they responded to the Lord, all four of them, how they either responded to him or rejected him, showed that God's plan, hey, it was spot on. Fancy that. God, God, God knows what he's talking about. But anyways, there are those who in Paul's day and in ours as well, would look at this and question now God's fairness. They first would question his word, saying, God's failed, God has messed up. But now they would look and say, well, what about his fairness? This doesn't seem fair, Paul. And so they call into question God's righteousness. God's righteousness is called into question, and Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to address and challenge in these verses that we are studying today. So with that, pick up with me in verse 14 as we get started in the text. Or Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord, for everyone that is here, Lord, for everyone that is online. God, I just praise you and thank you. And Lord, for the opportunity that we've had to, Lord, worship you with our voices and, Lord, turning our attention and our minds to you, God, I thank you for that opportunity. And now as we continue in worship and we study your word, I pray that, Lord, you would be our teacher. You would speak and you would help us. And God, I selfishly ask for your help in this because God, I need your help in teaching and preaching your word to an end that is effective only for your glory and for the edifying of your people and us going forward on mission. So help us today, God, to understand the truths that are before us, to understand what you have to say and to know that God, your word is true and it never fails. So God, I pray this, I ask this expectantly in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Paul begins this section asking the question, 
Is God unrighteous? Does his choosing and electing in his sovereignty make him unrighteous? And Paul says there, answering his question, certainly not. And is going to go on to show, using two examples again from the Old Testament to help solidify the answer to this question. He's going to look first at Moses, and by extension, really, the nation of Israel, whom God had mercy on, and Pharaoh, whom God ultimately hardened. And Paul is wanting to explain his answer to the question, is God unrighteous? And by that same logic, are his choices unrighteous? And by extension of that, ultimately, has God's word failed? And that is really what we have to keep in mind as we move through this text. Remember, chapter 9 is dealing with Israel's past election. And Paul here showing that, hey, look, God chose you as his people. And just because he's going to the Gentiles doesn't mean that his word has failed. He's wanting to show them indeed that God's word has not failed. But because of them rejecting Christ, indeed, he has now turned attention to the Gentiles and opened that up. But his word has not still failed. And Paul is wanting to show that as he moves through this. And it's important for us to remember that it will come up again and again. So keep that in mind. Paul uses these two examples from the Old Testament, again, starting with Moses there. And Paul references Exodus 33, 19. Which, if you know that story, that's the event where Moses is there up on the mountain with God, and God's been speaking to him. And Moses is like, oh, show me your glory. And God's like, you can't handle it because you were just into oblivion. He's like, no way can that happen. But what I'll do is I'll put you in a cleft of a rock. I'll cover you with my hand, and I will walk by you, and you can see my glory as it passes by. That's the context. That's the verse that he references. But the context of that verse goes all the way back to chapter 32 of Exodus. And we discussed that chapter last week. You'll remember that Moses at this time, at the beginning of chapter 32, he was up on the top of Mount Sinai. And as he's up there, he's receiving the law from God and he's receiving instruction to relay to the nation of Israel on how to build their tabernacle and how to walk as God's chosen people. And God says there to Moses, hey, there's idolatry in the camp. There are things going on. Get down the mountain, Mo." And so he heads down the mountain. He finds there, of course, he finds, the, uh, he finds the golden calf. He finds Aaron there making excuses for it. And he's like, okay, this can't be. He destroys the calf. The people drink the powder that he puts in the water. We went over this last week. There is judgment there for that sin. 3,000 people of the nation of Israel there are punished and ultimately die in judgment. Now, here's what we know about God, thinking all of that story through, thinking about the context here. What we know about God from the study of the book of Romans is that he is totally and completely righteous, totally and completely holy, holy, set apart, and other in every single way. And the sin in the camp that was there found by Moses that the Israelites were guilty of, by the sheer fact of God being God, God should have wiped them out immediately. Like they're in the presence of righteous God, they should have been wiped out immediately. But because of God's great love, there was mercy and compassion that was extended to the Israelites. Mercy, remember, compassion there, grace is not getting what they there deserve. God should have wiped them out, but instead he extended mercy. Did they deserve it? No. Do we deserve it? No. But God did it. God extended it. And in verse 16, Paul moving in and continuing on this thought, he says there, it wasn't because of their desire for the things of God. Again, their desire in that moment was their flesh, to be giving in to their flesh. It wasn't that they were desiring the things of God, nor was it because of their merit. Again, they were in sin. They're worshiping the golden calf. They were there steeped in idolatry. What they deserved because of what they were desiring and because of what they were working in, they deserved to be judged. 
But what we see is that God extends mercy. He extends mercy there. He extends compassion. Your translation may say grace. He extends it because he wanted to, because he loved them, the same way that he extends it because he loves us. And Paul, what he does is he points this out, uses this as the example, because some of the Jews had wondered why the nation of Israel was no longer living within the promises of God as a nation. Remember, in the context of chapter 9, they were looking at it and saying, okay, it seems like God has failed. Like God's word is not the same as it was. And Paul here, what he's wanted to do is reroute their thinking. He's like, God's not unrighteous. In fact, he extends mercy on whom he wants to extend mercy because he's God. And he's extending mercy the same way that he did to you guys time and time again in the nation of Israel. So is he now extending mercy there to the Gentiles. Paul's like, God hasn't changed. God is not unrighteous. God's word has not failed. In fact, he is there doing exactly what he has done for you the entire history of your nation. He's extending mercy and he's doing so because he's God and because he can and because he wants to. Paul is showing that God hadn't failed. Paul is showing that God's word hadn't failed. He is showing that God has willed all along. Because God can, because he's God, to show mercy to the Gentiles as he chooses to show mercy and had shown mercy to Israel. He'd done many times to them. And so Paul here is saying, look, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will have, on whomever I will have compassion. They're like, don't think that God's word had failed because he's extending that now to the Gentiles. He's done it for you and he can because he's God. He hadn't failed. And then Paul moves on, and he goes to another Old Testament example. And what he's doing is he's wanting to show the whole picture of the Lord here. And he's using the example of Pharaoh to show that as God extends mercy to those he wills, the same is true in that he hardens as well. But this is not only, hear me, an example, but it's also a transition into this argument that Paul is still posing here in chapter 9. It'll all, I hope, make sense as we get there. Paul goes around the block to go next door in this section, if you know what I mean. But here what he does is the example and reference that Paul uses for Pharaoh is Exodus 9.16. I I personally, just a quick caveat as if we need another one today. I love what Paul says there as he jumps into this in verse 17 where he says, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh. I love that Paul here, and it's something that we should take note of as we are called to read the Bible and know the Bible. He stands on the Bible. And he stands on the Bible as God's word. What he's about to say, how he's about to use Pharaoh as an example, he does it by using scripture. He doesn't just throw out this idea like, this is Paul's opinion. This is my idea. You know, he's like, this is what the word of God says. And I'm encouraged that he does that. And I'm also challenged that he does that. To, again, look at the word of God and to know it. And to so stand on it, knowing that I can trust it, that it will never fail. But also challenged to to actually stand on it, (laughs) to actually share it when God prompts me to share it. That's what we see Paul doing here. Anyways, caveat done, moving on. Paul, in this verse, speaks of the fact and is speaking of the fact that God had allowed, and we cannot escape this, had allowed Pharaoh to be the one who had the nation of Israel in bondage there in Egypt. And God did so so that he could show his power in releasing the nation by his hand and through his deliverer, Moses. The Bible is clear that God raised up Pharaoh the same way that he raised up Moses so that his power could be seen and shown in the world. Now, some get caught up on this part right here. The same way that they do verse 13. 
And they look at this and they seek to think that this shows that God's works in people's lives without their choice, without their being able to move and have a will of their own. However, we need to understand that that is not what is the case here. Reading here in this verse, it may seem indeed that God just willed and wanted and hardened Pharaoh and he had no option, but we have to be students of the Bible. We have to know the whole text. We have to be in and through all of the word and we have to understand something today. Did God, as it says here in Romans, harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, he absolutely did. But the next question to ask as we move into this and something to remember is, did Pharaoh also harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, he absolutely did. You see, in the Exodus story, there as Moses goes to Pharaoh and he goes and he says, all right, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, like who's this God that I should listen to him? Who's this God that I should submit to him? And he there hardens his heart against the Lord. And time after time, Pharaoh actually hardens his heart against the Lord before God ever hardens his heart in Pharaoh, hardens the heart of Pharaoh, excuse me. You see, there in the Exodus story, we need to key in on the fact that two different words are used for harden there. One word that is used for harden that Pharaoh speaks in, speaking of him hardening his own heart. It speaks there of Pharaoh as Moses comes and says, let my people go, or as the plagues come there on the nation of Israel. What it is is that Pharaoh there makes his heart hard. He firms up. He resists there the Lord. That is an action of Pharaoh. And that word there is different from the word that is used when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because as Pharaoh made his heart firm and stood against the Lord, resisted it, so too did God come in after he had done it time and time again, and he hardens his heart as well. The word used for harden there is the word that could be to make firm or to confirm Pharaoh's hearts. And so, yes, as we read this, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was just a confirming of Pharaoh's heart that was already set firm against the Lord. Now, we have to understand this because it's so important to do so, lest we get to a place where this was never meant to be. We need to understand, speaking of God's mercy and speaking of God's hardening, that in the same way here that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord time and time again and that he confirmed that desire ultimately in Pharaoh's heart, so too, if, God, if Pharaoh had softened his heart towards the Lord, he would have confirmed that as well. He absolutely would have. And you see, that doesn't negate the plan of the Lord. Again, God's plan was to free his people and get the glory. And he did that. We know how the Exodus story happened. He did that by sending the plagues and God and Pharaoh consistently hardening his heart. So God confirms him in that. And there and again, that ultimately leads to Pharaoh's downfall. But what we need to know is that God still would have gotten the glory had Pharaoh softened his heart towards the Lord. Should Moses had come in and be like, let my people go. And he's like, no. And then the Nile turns to blood and he's like, okay, go. <laughs> like God still gets the glory. God still gets the glory and is still shown as exalted over Egypt. Both are true. His mercy and the hardening, the confirming, both are true. God raised up both Moses and Pharaoh. They both had roles in God's plan and both made choices within their lives that God confirmed their hearts in. The same is true for us, guys. We have to understand this. The same is true for us, that God has made each of us, has placed us in this place and in this space, in his will and by his plan to walk with him. And we have a choice 
as he extends mercy to us. Again, none of us deserve. We've read the book of Romans. We've been, you know, we've, we're in chapter 9 now. Many of you, I see, have been here. You know none of us deserve his mercy, but yet he extends it. And we're called in that mercy to respond. And God, as we do so, as we respond to his mercy, as we respond to his calls, we open ourselves up to his goodness. He confirms that decision. He will confirm that. As you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want to walk with you. I want to go with you. He's going to say, yeah, you do. Come on. And he's going to bring you with him. He's going to open it up, open his word and show you. As you come to the word and you say, God, I want you to speak to me. He'll speak to you. As you have a desire to follow after him, he will meet and confirm that desire in your heart. The same is true for the other side of the coin. That if you resist the Lord, if you push if you kick against the goads there as Paul was doing, if you kick enough, God will honor that choice. Now, where that line is, I don't know. I don't want to be anywhere close to that line. Like where that line is, I'm fine with not knowing where it's at and it's staying far away. But it is an absolute truth that we see explicitly in Scripture. That if we soften our heart to the Lord, He will confirm and so respond to us in a way. If we harden ourselves to the things of the Lord, he will honor that decision. He will show mercy to whom he wills to show mercy, and he will harden whom he wants to harden. And that leads to the next part of the conversation that Paul jumps to, and I love that he jumps into it very quickly. And so should we, because really what it does is it heads off the reader's mind to going somewhere that it shouldn't be in thinking of God's working in people's lives. Speak with me in verse 19 as we continue on. Or Paul says, you will say to me then, then why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Paul really quickly wants to head off the thought that some would have as they read. Maybe even some of you who would read about God here hardening Pharaoh's heart and think that Pharaoh had no choice in the matter, thus freeing him from judgment. Which is absurd, again, when you read the Exodus story. When you see that Pharaoh was a grown man who there hardened his heart and was only confirmed in that decision that he had already made. But the question is raised there in verse 19 as to how God could find faults. If he has mercy on whom he has mercy and hardens whom he hardens, then how can there be faults with man? And Paul notice what he does. So unhelpful, he doesn't answer the question. Like, I'm so, such a frustrating thing with Paul. Like I'm looking there, I'm like, yeah, Paul, tell me, why does he still find fault? He, does, he doesn't say anything. He's just, he just moves on. In fact, instead of answering the question with a statement, he answers it with another question. He says, but indeed, on verse 20, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Instead of helping us out and giving us the answer, he then says, who are you? Who are you there to kick against the Lord, to question God, his will, and he's working? And what Paul is doing here is he's not negating the reality that God works sovereignly and that man has a responsibility. He's not negating that. But he is trying to get our perspective and our mindset into the reality that as we look to God and Him working, Him moving, Him leading, 
that we are His, and He has a plan, and He calls us to that plan. We know that He calls us to that plan. Our call is to walk in that plan and to trust Him in that plan. We have the option to not, but we are called to do so. He uses the example, again, to confirm the reality that God is sovereign. He uses the example of the potter in a lump of clay, how the potter can make something for honorable use and others for dishonorable use. Why? Because he's the creator. I mean, if you have done pottery before, I don't know if you have. My grandmother actually does it. She's fabulous. She's amazingly talented, and she does it. And watching her do that is amazing. She takes this lump of of clay and just slaps it down there on the wheel and then starts to spin it. And then she gets tired of, she just makes a mistake, she just squishes it down. It's, it's barbaric to watch when you think about it. But anyways, it happens and it's amazing and she's so good at it. But I watch her there and this really comes to life when I think about her there spinning on the wheel. Paul here is saying, look, the idea of the potter is that the clay has, 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 has no say in the matter. Now, before we move on, we have to interject this. Because again, just like verse 13 is not... They're a proof text for God choosing from the womb who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So too here is this not, is this not a text of Paul saying that God makes some that are to be thrown out and some that are to be cherished. That is not what this is to say. This taken in the context of what we're reading, again, is to show that God is sovereign, but we are still responsible. And he does that because he shows there again that the clay is just a lump of clay. It doesn't have, it can't look, it can't speak, it can't, you know, say anything there to the potter. And indeed, what's to come out here is the reality that the potter does make. He does have a, a hand in the creation process. The same way that God, it is undeniable, has a hand in our creation process. The family you're born into, the time period that we're living in, God had a hand in that. God had a hand in putting you and making you who you are. Every little thing about you, as many hairs as you do, did, or don't have on your hair, on your head, God had a hand in that. But the thing that we need to think about and remember is that though God is sovereign and has a sovereign hand in our being born where we are and how we are, and this is explicitly seen through Scripture, we are different from a lump of clay. We are different in that we are not just a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. We are made in God's image. We are made after his likeness. We are made in a way to where we have intelligence, some more than others. We have, just kidding. We have a will. We have the problem solving. We have have thought we're not just clay. We're not just lumps. We have the ability to work independently, to think independently, to make choices, choices that we are responsible for which then brings both the sovereignty of God and, again, the responsibility of man into the equation. Again, did God raise up Pharaoh to show his glory in liberating the Jews by Moses and to ultimately the undoing of Pharaoh? Yes, he did. Is God unfair for judging Pharaoh? No, because God was merely, again, confirming the heart that Pharaoh had towards God. God's plan was still getting done. God's plan would still get done. And his plan is moving and working because he's sovereign. It will get done, and he knows it. But man still is responsible. Pharaoh was still responsible. In fact, Paul goes on to show that God was patient with Pharaoh. That's what we see there in verses 22 through 24. Speaking of God enduring there, Paul says there in verse 22, in essence, that instead of questioning God, 
Look at to how God actually endured Pharaoh and gave him opportunity to repent. Like when you think about it again, God should have just toasted Pharaoh right then, just smoked him when he first said no. When he was like, let my people go. He was like, no way. He should be like, well, but Pharaoh there had opportunity and God was patient, giving him that opportunity. Paul is pointing out that if God wanted to do to Pharaoh, to do Pharaoh in without ever giving him the time that he could have. The call is the Lord's to make because he's God and God will again make his glory and plan known through showing that wrath. On the flip side, thinking of the enduring, but on the flip side of that, now turning back again to the conversation, Paul goes around the block to go next door, but back to the conversation here, God will also make his glory known through showing mercy to whom he will have mercy. Namely, here for the context of chapter 9, not only on the Jews, but on the Gentiles as well. Paul gets to the conversation at hand and leads us back to the context of the discussion. Where again, the Jews here were concerned that God had failed the nation of Israel, that his word had failed, that he had missed it, that he had messed up. And Paul here is showing that God had not failed, that his word had not fallen. What they needed to understand is that God can show mercy to whom he wishes and can appoint to wrath whom he wishes, and he can still have a chosen people in the nation of Israel, but also allow the gospel message to go to the Gentiles. And it didn't mean that God's word had failed. It didn't mean that Israel was any less of God's elected nation. It was just God's plan, and God was working his plan. And what we see here that Paul hits on next is the fact that this was God's plan, and it's evident that it was his plan, and they should have known it was his plan because they had, again, the word of God and the prophets there speaking the word of God in the Old Testament. They should have known this was the plan, which is what Paul hits on as he moves through verses 25 through 29. Pick it with me as we run through these quickly. Where Paul says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnants will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath, that is the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Again, what Paul is speaking about here is the reality that, look, God's word hasn't failed. God's word didn't fail. God didn't drop the ball. In fact, you should know about this. You should know that this was the plan all along that God has been working. The gospel would go to the Gentiles. First in this series of verses, Paul quotes there Hosea 2.23. And this is a prophecy there declaring that God would there call them my people who were not my people. There are people who are outside of that elected nation of Israel who were his people. He says, those who aren't my people, I'm going to call them to myself. I want them to be mine. He says there in verse 26, they're referencing Hosea 1.10, that Paul uses this verse really to give another proof text that God actually wanted the nations around. He says, look, the ones that I'm going to bring, I'm going to call them sons the same way that I have elected and called you adopted Israel so too will those who put their faith in me be adopted sons and daughters as well. Paul says this was the plan all along. Why are you surprised? 
Paul says, this is the plan all along. Why would you think God's word fails? The same way that he shows mercy to you, Israel, whom he wishes to have mercy on, the same way he can show mercy to the Gentiles as he wants to have mercy on them. God's word didn't fail. And then Paul turns it back to the Jewish nation in prophecy about being set aside as a result there of rejecting Christ. And we're going to talk more about that as we move into chapter 10. Again, this all bleeds into chapter 10 here. But Paul quotes Isaiah 10, through 23 there to show that sadly, only a remnant of Israel in the vast majority of those who claim to be of the nation, there would just be a remnant there who would be saved. And lastly, he quotes there Isaiah 1, 9. Paul emphasizes the grace of God that saves that remnant, that it is God's grace. It is, again, God's mercy that he chooses to extend that will ultimately save, that they can choose to walk in that will save. And again, we'll see more of that as we move forward in chapter 10, 11, even our study in Revelation on Wednesday nights. That plan is in place, and God lets us in on what that looks like. But it's inescapable that the Gentiles were being saved at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, and there was concern in the nation. And what Paul has done in all of chapter 9 is he sought to show those who were concerned and were thinking again, hey, God messed up. God's word failed. He's here to show them God's word never failed. God is the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow and forever. His word has not failed. He has not failed, nor will he ever fail. In fact, what he's doing is he's doing the same thing to you, Israel, that he's been doing since he chose you, showing you mercy, showing you mercy and calling you to himself. And what you have done is said, no. But that doesn't mean that God's word has failed. That doesn't mean that God's word has fallen short or that God is unable to complete his plan. In fact, his plan all along was that the gospel would go out. And Paul here is showing and shining this out so that they would realize, hey, we're still God's people. Even if God's showing mercy to others, God's word didn't fail. And for us today, again, as we talk about the nation of Israel and God's plan for Israel, we can sit here Calvary Chapel Paris, here our very Gentile selves here in Paris, Texas, and be like, what does this do for me? Why, Lord, do I need this? We need this because we need to remember, too, that God's word has not failed and will never fail. That God's word is true today, forever. And that's not easy to remember on the day-to-day, when we look outside, when we turn on the news, when we look at things that are going on in this world, it's not easy to remember that sometimes. It's not easy to remember that sometimes. And we think, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in, in, and why have you put me here? Like, not only what are you doing, but why am I here? Your word must have failed. You must have messed up. The enemy loves to pump that into us. He loves to slip that our way. But what we need to remember is that God doesn't fail. His word doesn't fail. And in the same way that we as the church realize that as we are called to him, as we are his, he has set us on a trajectory to ultimately, in the goal, be conformed to the image of his son. And we know that as we walk in that trajectory, that ultimately, Romans 8, 28, again, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God's word hasn't failed. God's word has not failed in your life, Christian, today as you sit there in the hardness, 
as you look at the world around you and think, where's the Lord? He's right where he's always been, on the throne. And his word is absolutely true today as it has always been. So today, trust him. Today, trust that as Paul here says that God is righteous and true. Trust that that is true for you as well. Trust that that is true for you in your situation, in your hardness, in where you're at, that it's true. And he extends to you and extends to us mercy and love and compassion and grace. And what we're called to do is say, you know what? God, I'm going to follow you. God, I'm going to take hold of it. I'm going to walk in it. And maybe that's for the first time ever. Maybe that's for you for the first time to realize that God has shown mercy, that he is extending mercy and compassion and grace. He's extending it to you and to me. He's extended it to us. And he's done that just because he's God and because he loves us and because he wants to and because he can. Like That's amazing because that's not what we deserve. We deserve to be obliterated the moment that we step onto this earth. That's what we deserve. But yet God shows mercy because he desires to do so. Our call is to see that, take that extension of mercy and grace, apply it to our lives, and walk in it. And trust that through and through, the same word that says that God will save us is the same word that will lead us and guide us every step of the way. It will never fail. And so today, maybe for the first time, you need to realize that, and you need to walk in that, and respond to that. And you can do that. You can absolutely respond to the word of God that says he loves you. And even though you're a sinner, hey, he wants you as his. The other thing you can do for that is you can be encouraged today if you are a believer, maybe for the first time or for the 100th time, you can be encouraged in wherever you're at to know that God has not failed you, that God has not left you. You are still his as you belong to him. And he will encourage you today. He will encourage and wants to encourage you today in that truth. He wants to encourage you in the truth that you are his and he loves you and he has not failed you and will never fail you. And today as we have opportunity to remember that, respond to that, I pray that we would because that affects how we live. That affects how we walk out those doors and show him in this world. So let's remember today, church, that God's word has not failed, that he loves us. The mercy that he extends to us is just one piece and part of showing his great love for us. And he will not fail us as we respond to that and walk in that. Let's pray.